What a joy it is to be able to to sing together. Amen. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can you can open with me to uh, John chapter seven. We're going to continue to to walk through our, our study of John's gospel. And as you're as you're turning there, back on January twenty second, nineteen seventy three, the uh, United States Supreme Court handed down a ruling uh, on a, a court case known as Roe versus Wade, which legalized uh, abortion in all 50 states. Since that time, there have been an estimated 61 million abortions uh, in America. So over 47 years, that is an average of just under 1.3 million a year. Now, if you were to if you were to, to tally up uh, every death of an American soldier in every single American war, the, the total number of deaths of all Americans in, in every war would be one million three hundred and fifty-four thousand, or just over one point three million. So on an, on an average year, there are almost as many children aborted in America than have soldiers who have died in every American war. Those are the, the sad consequences of, of one Supreme Court decision. And that's not to say that if that decision hadn't been made, that abortion wouldn't exist. It, it would. But that decision opened the, the floodgates and has encouraged uh, abortion uh, as an option and, and as a right, and all of that to say ideas have consequences. I've said that over and over again, and, and bad ideas have, have victims. And, and I bring that to our attention because we, we have to, to pray. We have to pray for our nation. Because quite honestly, we need God to, to work in human hearts. All across America, we need uh, the Lord to to bring conviction, to, to bring an understanding of who He is and who He has created us to be. And that really needs to, to permeate the hearts and minds of all Americans if there's really going to to be change. But my prayer is that with with grace and and with patience, with boldness and, and perseverance. That we would proclaim the truth in a loving way. The truth of God's word that every single human life has value and that every single human life is sacred. And what we are seeing in our nation in a variety of ways, not just regarding abortion, is the effects of unbelief. Now, unbelief has consequences. A, a denial of God's existence, a denial of God's presence, of his holiness, of his righteousness, of his future judgment over every single person. If you deny those things, we're, we're going to continue to, to be led astray into sin. Because that's the, that's the direction that we all naturally run. We don't run towards God. We run away from Him, toward the desires of our own hearts, of our own minds. As we, we study John 7 this morning where we're going to see uh, particular effects of unbelief. 
We're going to see what happens when, when the truth of God is heard repeatedly and uh, rejected continually. And the, the crowds of people and the, the Jewish leaders had, had heard Jesus teach and, and they had seen him perform miracles. But their hearts grew ever harder because they continually rejected everything that he said. What are the effects of such unbelief? Well, if you look with me this morning, we're going to study verses 32 to 36 in John 7. And I would invite you to to read those uh, with me now. It says, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me? And you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Now before we we dive in, I'd love to just pause uh, and pray for the Lord to bless our study this morning. Father, you, you are the sovereign one. You rule over every nation, over every human heart. You are the one who, who sits... Uh, in judgment. Lord, I pray that you would be with our nation. That you would work in hearts and draw them to yourself through your Son. Bring conviction. Bring truth. Open eyes. Transform hearts in Christ. May you do a great work to change the trajectory that we are on, Lord. But as we come to your word now, I pray that you would also do a great work in our hearts here. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Open our eyes to to see and behold the wonderful truths of your word. And Lord, humble us. Help us to see all the ways in which this passage of Scripture shines a light upon our sinfulness your holiness, and the glorious truths of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we, as we study this passage, we're going to see the unbelief of the Jewish leaders on display. And again, these, these Jewish leaders have, have seen Jesus perform miracles. They, they have heard him teach. They have debated with him. They have contradicted him. They have slandered him. And now... They are beginning to act upon the conspiracy that has been in the background. They have been plotting to kill Jesus, and now they're going to finally begin to act. And as we study these verses, we're going to see the effect of unbelief upon the human heart. And if we doubt God's word, if we doubt Christ's character, if we are unwilling to believe and submit to him, things will happen in our heart. Unbelief is not a neutral position, but it has a hardening effect upon our heart and upon our soul. What are these effects of unbelief? Well, we're going to see three of them in our passage this morning. The first one is going to be revealed 
by the, the actions of the Jewish leaders. The, the second is going to be revealed by, by the words of Jesus. And the third is going to be revealed by the, the questions of the, the Jewish leaders. Uh, but, but the first effect of unbelief is, is seen in verse 32. And you could phrase it this way, that an unbelieving heart will prompt unbelieving actions. What we see in verse 32 that the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And that points back to verse 31. Uh, and what was beginning to take place is that people in the crowd were, were beginning to believe. They're saying, hey, is, is it possible that if Jesus is not the Messiah, well, when the Messiah does come, is he going to do more things than what Jesus has already done that we've seen and beheld him do? So the people are asking that, that very good and logical question, and they're realizing maybe Jesus is the Messiah. And so the, the Jewish leaders are beginning to say, okay, people are starting to follow him more and more. We've got we to gotta act. Something must be done about Jesus. And so what we see is that the, there's two, two parties are mentioned here. The, the chief priests and the Pharisees are going to send officers to arrest Jesus. Uh, and, and these two parties that are, that are mentioned... Uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees are two of three groups that make up uh, the Jewish ruling body uh, of the Sanhedrin. It's kind of like what we would look at our legislative uh, body. But uh, the, I want to look at each one of these uh, different parties. Now, first, the, the chief priests. Uh, while, while there was only one high priest at a time uh, in Israel, uh, the chief priests included anyone who had previously been a high priest because that was a, a position that rotated on a regular basis. And so the chief priests were uh, the current high priest and anyone who had currently or previously been a high priest and then also uh, some of the, the family members of uh, the high priest. Uh, and this group of uh, priest was extremely influential if you as we look later in john chapter 18 when jesus was arrested uh he was taken not to the uh the current high priest uh, but he was actually taken uh, initially uh to the high priest's father-in-law so he shows us who's really the most influential person on the sanhedrin was not the the current high priest but a former high priest uh, and uh, the chief priests uh and the sadducees uh, were uh, the ones who had political power in Jerusalem and in uh, Israel. Uh, and the Sadducees were uh, made up of the chief priests uh, and, the, again, the, the additional family members. Uh, and they were the ones who, who were in charge under the authority of the Roman government. And so while Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor, uh, on the, the everyday matters of the, the Jewish people, uh, Pontius Pilate would delegate that to uh, this political body of the Sanhedrin. Uh, and the chief priests in uh, particular. Uh, and the Sadducees, are kind of synonymous with this chief priests, uh, their views, or they were more political than religious, but they also had uh, some theological positions that created conflict with the Pharisees. Uh, the Sadducees uh, believed that, that God worked with man hand in hand in the events of, of human history, that, that God was not sovereign to them, but uh, that he depended upon man's free will. Uh, and that was man's free will. That was the explanation for good and evil, uh, for prosperity and adversity. And they believed that God was kind of hands off when it comes to human affairs. Uh, and additionally... Now, the Sadducees did not believe in any future resurrection or anything after this life. They kind of were annihilationists of if, 
uh, once you uh, you died, you ceased to exist. Now, they also accepted only the writings of Moses. And they rejected everything else uh, in the Old Testament. And they also rejected the oral tradition that the Pharisees worked so hard uh, to obey and to teach. Uh, and one uh, Bible dictionary uh, said this, Sadduceeism uh, thus seems to be a teaching which, while it does not dispute God's existence, theoretically, it amounts to atheism in practice. Uh, and so you have this, this body of, of rulers who really don't believe in God, uh, but they are ruling over God's people. And these are the, the chief priests and the Sadducees. But then you also have the Pharisees. And, and this uh, group gets their name uh, from the, the Aramaic term that means to, to set apart or to be separate. Uh, and these were the, the religious fundamentalists. Uh, these were the people that uh, held to God's word, believed that God was, was sovereign, and they, they wanted to obey everything that God's word said. They believed in the Old Testament law and then uh, everything else uh, in uh, the Jewish Old Testament. Uh, and uh, they sought to uh, apply every little detail. And, and uh, the, the danger in, in where they went uh, was that they also sought to follow uh, the teaching of the elders, the teachings of the rabbis, the oral tradition. So they said, hey, we have to obey uh, everything in God's word. And then we need to obey everything that has been taught about God's word. And then we also, uh, so there was a, a commentary uh, that they sought to obey. And then they also elevated the commentary on the commentary. So we're, we're playing telephone here uh, in terms of uh, obedience to what God has actually said. And as the culture around uh, the Pharisees became more and more Greek or more and more Hellenistic, uh, they sought to isolate themselves. Uh, and there was the Pharisees that gradually took control of the synagogue system in Israel, and they were the ones who were teaching the people. And ultimately they were teaching the people a, a false religious system based upon works rather than upon uh, acknowledging sinfulness and trusting uh, in God and seeking God's mercy and grace. And it was the, the Pharisees that Jesus addressed constantly because they were the, the false teachers. The, the, the chief priests were kind of just hands-off and... Uh, atheistic, uh, but the Pharisees were teaching a, a different religion. And it's important to, to understand that uh, the, the Judaism uh, of Jesus's time and the Judaism of today is not equal to Old Testament uh, faith. But uh, ultimately, uh, it was these two groups who were conspiring together here to kill Jesus. And now for us, this is not that shocking. You're like, okay, well, what's the big deal? Well, what if I told you that the Republicans and the Democrats uh, were coming together to do something? Would that get your attention? It totally would, because you're like, wait, what in the world would they partner together on? Uh, and and that's the, this would immediately get the attention of a Jewish reader. Like, wait, these two parties, th these, these two factions are, are political and religious enemies. They, they, they don't work together. But they are here, they are brought together by a mutual hatred of Jesus. What's, what's that old saying? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, and, and so they, they hated Jesus so much that they were willing to, to work with their uh, longtime enemies to conspire against him. And all of this uh, happens in this verse. These two parties commit to work together and they commission uh, the temple guard. 
uh, or the, the, the officers uh, who were the Levites uh, in charge of maintaining order within the temple, uh, they, they send the, the temple guard to look for an opportune time uh, to arrest Jesus. Uh, and so uh, John introduces what's happening here in the background, but we're not going to find out what actually happens with these uh, commissioned officers uh, until later on. Uh, in verse 45, uh, we're going to see the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Uh, they, they come back empty-handed. They don't have Jesus. And the Pharisees say, uh, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Uh, and, and we'll look at that when the time comes. So uh, the, these officers are looking for an opportune moment uh, to, to arrest Jesus, And so this side story is going to kind of be looming in the background. But, but really the focus here is upon the mutual hatred for Jesus by the Jewish leaders. Right? And, and these actions are flowing out of their hearts. Right? They have been hostile toward Christ. They have been scheming and plotting and conspiring against him for months. And now it's finally coming to fruition. What we need to to see and and note here is that our desires never stay in our hearts. Our desires will eventually be acted upon. Right? If we leave sinful desires left unaddressed in our hearts, uh, they're going to begin to control and dictate what we do. And everything that we do is ultimately a, a revealing of what we desire most. And this is why an unbelieving heart will prompt an un, unbelieving actions. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 45, uh, Jesus says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And elsewhere in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your hands and feet will follow your heart. Your actions will follow your affections. So when there is hatred, hostility, and unbelief in our hearts, that's eventually going to come out unless it is acknowledged and repented of. This is the first effect of an unbelieving heart, and this is why Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says that we must guard our heart, we must keep our heart with all diligence, for it is the wellspring of life where everything else flows out of our hearts. Unbelieving heart will lead to and prompt unbelieving actions. Then secondly, second effect of unbelief that we see is that an unbelieving heart will keep you from heaven. It's seen in verses 33 and 34. Jesus, in responding to what's taking place in the background, Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. And you will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And so again, we don't know if Jesus 
physically saw or heard the details that we just read about in verse 32. We don't know if there was a, you know, uh, a team huddle of the Sanhedrin uh, and commissioning of the, the Levites to go and arrest Jesus. We don't know if he saw that, if he overheard something, or again, Jesus is all-knowing. Uh, he knew in his spirit, that is for sure. And so Jesus begins to address the situation that's taking place in the background. And since these, uh, these Levites have been commissioned to seek an opportunity to get Jesus uh, and arrest him. And Jesus begins to, to say, well, there's going to come a time when they are going to seek after him and they're not going to be able to find him. But more specifically, he makes three statements in verses 33 and 34. Okay. Uh, and th- this first statement, he says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. And Jesus says, in essence, it's only a matter of time before he leaves this life uh, and goes to be with the one who sent him, meaning God the Father. Again, this is uh, within about six months uh, of Jesus uh, returning to Jerusalem, being arrested and being crucified. And when Jesus speaks of uh, going to the Father, he is speaking of his own death. Uh, indeed, that is what uh, death is for Jesus. It, it's going to God. And indeed, every single believer, death is that same reality. That our death is going to be uh, in the presence of God in heaven. It's going to be with God and with the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. Death is not a final separation from God for believers. It is for unbelievers, for those who who reject Christ. They will not go to the Father. They will separate from Him. But for the believer, we go to the Father. The second statement that Jesus makes is that you will seek me and you will not find me. Uh, And uh, initially, this is kind of an ambiguous concept of an, an indefinite future time. Uh, when they will seek for Jesus and they won't be able to to locate him and, and find him. And this is more than likely speaking of the final judgment at that point in time uh, when when the truth is known about Christ. There will be many who seek him at that time only to not be able to find him. Jesus is going to say something similar in John chapter 8, verse 21. If you if you turn the page uh, in in your Bible. Again, this is in the same setting, at the same feast. Jesus, in speaking to the religious leaders, he says to them again, I am going away and you will seek me. And then notice the difference here. And you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Same idea here, but in, instead of saying you will not find me, he says you will die in your sin. You're not going to be able to seek uh, and find me as you hope for. Then his third statement, he says, where I am, you cannot come. And there's an, an emphasis in the Greek that where Jesus himself will be, meaning with the Father in heaven, the one who sent him, uh, that the, the crowd and the religious leaders, they will be unable to follow after him. They will be unable No matter how hard they try, they will be unable to follow and go where he is going. How can they go to God in heaven when they have rejected the one whom God has sent? They have rejected the messenger. They have rejected God's son. And and again, their rejection of 
Jesus as the Son of God, the messenger of God, shows forth the unbelief, that the hard-heartedness within them. John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, and Jesus, again, speaking to this uh, a similar crowd in, in Galilee. No, no, John chapter 5 would have been in, in Jerusalem, speaking to these same religious leaders. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Then in verse 40, he says, Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. Jesus connects their their unbelief uh, with a refusal to come to him. And so their, their refusal to worship Jesus will keep them out of heaven. It will keep them out of the presence of God. Refusing to come to Jesus means that you cannot come to God the Father. One of the, the, the Puritans uh, has a great quote and a great illustration concerning this reality of, of rejecting Christ. His name is John Flavel, and he says this, Oh, how unreasonable is the sin of unbelief by which the sinner rejects Christ and all of his mercies and benefits that alone can cure his misery. He refuses Christ who comes with heavenly light and wisdom. Sin has stabbed the, the sinner in the heart, and his wounds are all deadly, and eternal death is in his face. Christ has prepared the only remedy to cure his wounds, but he will not allow him to apply it. He acts like one in love with death and that judges it sweet to perish. They accept a cure for anything but their souls. They undo themselves by rejecting Christ in his gracious offers. In Romans chapter 10, verse 21 uh, God, God speaks of, of Israel in this way. He says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And unbelief separates us from God. It will keep us out of heaven. And ultimately, the sin of unbelief is the one sin that we are judged for. Right? The sin of unbelief is the one thing that will keep us out of heaven because all other sins can be forgiven. All other sins are paid for on the cross by Christ. All other sins, the penalty has been paid in full. But unbelief will condemn everyone who embraces it. And it is, again, the one sin that will will keep you out of the presence of God. And, and we all fall into one category or another. We either uh, are looking to Christ in faith or we are rejecting him. Scripture over and over says there is no neutral ground. Even as we've studied uh, the gospel of John, we see there is no neutral ground. We are all by default uh, unbelievers. We are all going our own way, going astray. None of us seek after God. John 3.36 puts it this way. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is a sobering statement that that Jesus is making to this crowd in the temple, right? That where Jesus is going to be with the Father, they can't go. What was even more startling is if if you turn with me over to John chapter 13... 
Jesus says the same thing to the 12 disciples in the upper room. John chapter 13, verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus says, what I said to the, to the Jews back in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, I'm going to say to you also now. So how do we interpret that? Don't we get to go where Jesus is going? Don't we get to go and be with him? What does he mean here? And how is he connecting it, those two statements? I would say this, what Jesus is saying here is of a much different tone than what he is saying to the Jews in John chapter 7 and, and 8. Uh, what, what Jesus is saying here to his disciples is that they cannot come with him to the cross. They cannot come with him uh, to the grave, to his death at that point in time. There were other things that they needed to accomplish, but how, how do I know that that's true? Well, well, we're there in John chapter 13. Look at the very beginning of John chapter 14. Well, what does Jesus say after saying, you can't come with me? John chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That in my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. See, that's the, the difference with believers. We can't go with Christ uh, immediately. But he is making a place for us to be with him even now. John chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And this is the hope that we have if we have trusted, if we have placed our faith in Christ, uh, that we get to go and be with him for all of eternity. Unbelief will, will separate us from God, but be belief will unite us with Christ. Uh, for all eternity, we will receive all of the blessings of union with Christ here in this life, identifying with his life, his death, and his resurrection. And then we get the fullness of life with him in all of eternity. But here the focus is more upon the effect of unbelief. This is what Jesus is speaking to the crowd there in the temple. That unbelief will, will prompt unbelieving actions and unbelief will keep you from heaven. But then, additionally, what we see in verses 35 and 36 is a third effect of an unbelieving heart. You put it this way, an unbelieving heart will confuse Jesus' teaching. If you look with me at those Verses that the, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. So Jesus made three statements and the, the Jews have three questions about what he said. Now, the first question is, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? 
Uh, and, and the emphasis there is upon the we. And th- this is a prideful statement uh, loaded with the idea that uh, this, th- they are so powerful that there's nowhere that Jesus can go to escape them. Where does he think he's going to go that he's going to, to where we will not be able to find him? They interpret what Jesus said in earthly and physical concepts, and they, they have no understanding of the, the spiritual and the, the heavenly meaning that Jesus has here, that they are not going to be in fellowship with him or with God for all of eternity. But they're like, where are you going to run in the Roman Empire that we're not going to be able to find you, buddy? Second question that they ask is, does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? They ask if if Jesus is going to depart from the land of Israel, if he's going to go into other regions of the Roman Empire and beyond, and if he's going to go uh, and and teach uh, the the Jews in those regions, and if he's going to uh, also even teach the Greeks in those regions, right? There, ever since the uh, the Babylonian exile, there was a large population of Jews who lived outside of the land of Israel. Now, there were very large populations in Babylon who remained there, and there was also a large population uh, in Alexandria, Egypt, uh, and, and elsewhere in the Roman Empire. And the Jewish leaders asked this question in, in a spirit of mockery. Where is he going to go? What's he going to do? But again, this is, we talked about irony in John's Gospel last week. And this is another one of those statements that is just absolutely loaded with irony. Because this gospel that we are reading, that we are studying through, was written by the Apostle John, and it was written to those Jews who were scattered abroad in the Roman Empire and beyond. John is writing to those Jews, trying to convince them, trying to tell them that the Messiah has come. He is Jesus, and you should believe in Him. Additionally, what the Jewish leaders mock here is the exact method that the Apostle Paul used to spread the gospel uh, to the ends of the earth. You know what the, the normal method of ministry was for the Apostle Paul? As he was traveling from city to city, he would go to the Jewish synagogue, and the, the standard practice was if, somebody, if a rabbi was coming and passing through the city, you would invite that rabbi to come and speak to the, to the synagogue congregation. And so the Apostle Paul was constantly getting invites, and they'd bring him up, and guess what he would do? He said, the Messiah has come. Let me show you from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And if the Jews accepted what he said, praise the Lord, he would start a church there. If they rejected what he said, which happened often, he would turn to the Gentiles. He would turn to the Greeks, who were referred to as the God-fearers. Those are the, the, the Gentile uh, converts to Judaism. And Paul would would go and teach to them. And if the Jews rejected, the Gentiles would receive. And they would turn in faith to Christ. So again, uh, in dramatic irony here, the Jewish leaders are saying, what, like that's going to happen? And like, that's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. That's how the message of Jesus is going to go forth through the whole world. And they also ask a third question. So what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. And this is by far the, the most important question because it, it pertains to their eternal destiny. 
Right? What, is it, what does it mean when he said that? There's another hypothesis later on in, in John chapter 8, when Jesus repeats that in verse 21. and verse 22, the Jews say, what, is he going to kill himself? What's going to happen? Where, how is he going to go somewhere that we can't find him? But through all of this, they are confused. The unbelief of the, the Jewish leaders clouds their minds and it, it darkens their understanding. They can't understand what Jesus is teaching because they're blind. And those who reject Christ will, will profess to have sight concerning spiritual matters and and yet that merely shows that they are blind to their blindness. Could be the emphasis of John chapter 9. Those who repeatedly reject Christ are, are like the, the blind who reject the help of the seeing. You can imagine uh, being uh, in a car uh, with a, a blind man at the wheel. Okay, and you're sitting in the back seat, very nervously. <laughs> uh, and you're trying to give instructions to this blind driver as you drive down uh, to get from one place to another. And if the blind man knew that he was blind, what would he do? He would listen to you very carefully, right? How far should I go? When do I turn? When do I stop? How fast should I be driving? Tell me if there's a car. All of these questions. If they understood their blindness, they would be willing to hear what you have to say. But what if he didn't even think he was blind? What would he do? Nah, what do you know, seeing person? I can see too. I, I got just as good eyesight as you do. Well, what's going to happen? Well, as Jesus w- would say in Matthew fifteen fourteen, speaking of the spiritual blindness of the Jewish leaders, says, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Over and over again, Jesus is going to to point to the religious leaders, uh, the the Pharisees. He's going to say, you think you know truth, but you have no relationship with God. What they were teaching, what they were believing, was that they had a relationship with God based upon all of the things that they had done, all of their good works. They had kept the law. They were obedient. They felt that they had a relationship with God. Jesus says, no, you don't know him. That's why you don't know me. That's why they were unwilling to accept Jesus, because he was throwing a wrench into their whole religious system. And that's why we so often don't want to listen to and obey Christ, right? We have a way of doing things. We, we live a certain way. We have certain pet sins. And sometimes, what does Jesus do with those sins? Points them out. Throws a wrench into our life and says, hey, this needs to change. Then oftentimes we say, ah, maybe. But that's unbelief in our hearts. We have to see and understand that we all have spiritual blindness. That is our natural default state. But then the question would arise, how do we get our sight? You're telling me I'm blind. What do I do? How do I begin to see spiritual matters rightly? Well, so we begin to see when we see a life according to God's word. We begin by acknowledging that we are spiritually blind, that we need someone else to help us see it and move about. 
But when we acknowledge our own inability to see spiritual things rightly, then we ask God to help us see. Why don't you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 50. You look at me at verses 10 and 11. It says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire. And by the torches that you have kindled, this you have from my hand, and you shall lie down in torment. If you walk by the light of your own torch, you walk according to your own wisdom, then you cannot follow Christ. You're still spiritually blind. If you're walking according to your own torch, you're not going to enter into fellowship and relationship with God the Father. Yet, what this passage tells us, if you trust in the Lord, if you rely upon Him, if you acknowledge, I have no light, help me to see, God will give you that light. God will guide you. His Word will be the light that you walk and live by. And if if you're here this morning and you have been living that life of independence, that life of I have my own light. I have my own wisdom. I have my own way. I would plead for you to see the true state of your sight, the true state of your blindness. We all must rely upon God. We must all look to Christ in faith. We must recognize our blindness and ask for Christ to give us eyes to see That's the only way that we will be able to enter into relationship with God the Father. What we've seen this morning are these these three effects of unbelief. An unbelieving heart will will prompt unbelieving actions. It will keep you from heaven. And it will confuse Jesus' teaching. And and it would be easy uh, if we are among those who have professed faith in Christ. It would be really easy to say, well, that is a good warning to others. Like, good for them. They should be listening to this. But what we have to see, and I want to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, is that we still need to be concerned with unbelief creeping into our hearts, even if we have already professed and been following Jesus in faith. Hebrews was written to a, a group of Jewish believers who were contemplating departing from their faith in Christ and going back to the old ways of Judaism. And the author of Hebrews is going to be pleading with them not to do that. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, you have the beginning of a warning passage. uh, And the the passage extends from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, all the way down uh, to uh, the end of the chapter 4. 
or actually verse 13 in chapter 4. But, but I want to read little portions of this. Look with me in verse uh, 7. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with this generation, or that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the author of Hebrews points back to the wilderness generation and says they didn't get to enter into the promised land because of unbelief. He points back to them and look at chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The author of Hebrews is begging and imploring these Christians not to turn, to stay strong, to encourage and exhort one another to prevent an evil, unbelieving heart from developing. The deceitfulness of sin will turn us away from Christ to our own desires. He's saying we must be on guard against this. If you look with me over at chapter 4, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What's the greatest encouragement uh, to remaining faithful? Understanding God's omniscience. He is always present. He sees all that we do. But then look at the the conclusion that the author makes. Verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. May we continually turn to Christ in prayer, our faithful high priest, asking, imploring Him to grant us faith, to help us to grow and remain firm and steadfast. Don't look at these effects of unbelief and say, that can't happen to me. We must take heed and be on guard. Amen? Let's pray.